I get asked a lot by people that I meet in public what we are doing for Christmas and what special things we have at the church. And I usually explain to them a little bit about uh, what we believe and what the Bible teaches. And it surprises some folks uh, to know that we don't really know when Jesus was born. Uh, God didn't choose to tell us that date. The date of December 25th wasn't picked for 300 years or so after Jesus left this earth. And some men decided that, well, we ought to have a birthday for Jesus. Uh, Most Christians disagreed with that for centuries. Uh, There was quite a turmoil over whether we should celebrate one day as his birth or not. Uh, Most Christians believe that uh, birthdays were for pagans, for Caesar and Pharaoh and kings, uh, those were who you celebrated a birthday for, but the king of kings and lord of lords you celebrated all the time, not just one day. But it's come to be accepted. Uh, Mankind has pretty well embraced uh, the date of December 25th as the birth date of Christ, even though we have no idea when he was born. Uh, Actually, we've gone past that. Uh, now it's more of a secular real, uh, holiday, I think, than than religious. Uh, we do still some, pay some attention to it, and we hear the carols, and we're reminded. Uh, and I think that's a good thing that the world at least pays attention once a year uh, to the greatest event in history. Uh, some people wonder whether we should talk about it at all, uh, whether we should focus on it this time of year. I have no problem with that because Jesus taught from things that were happening then. Uh, Jesus referred to the headlines of the daily paper, things that were happening, and and drew people's minds to things that they were already thinking about. It's the way he taught, so I think that's a good way uh, for us to teach. And this time of year, everybody's mind is on things of Christmas. Uh, So, In the spirit of the season, uh, let's do a couple of lessons about Christmas at the movies. There are some famous Christmas movies, and we're going to look at a couple of them uh, this week and next. Uh, Let me point out a couple of things, first of all, just so you know I know that. Uh, Christmas movies are not a Bible lesson. Uh, If all we did was, I guess we could just watch a Christmas movie and we'd probably get some uh, good teachings out of it and uh, get some good feelings, but uh, it's not a Bible lesson. Uh, It's not from God, but I think Christmas movies can illustrate uh, what God wants us to know and help us think about them. Second thing uh, is some of this may look familiar to you, and you may, when you saw this slide, I think we talked about Christmas movies once before. Uh, We did a number of years ago, uh, and I decided to repeat a couple of them, even though I basically never repeat sermons. Uh, The reason I chose to do this, number one, I liked them. Uh, I thought they were kind of helpful to make us think. Uh, But number two, most of you didn't hear them. Uh, the, The year that we did these... We had about three weeks in a row of snowstorms and blizzards, and uh, we even canceled one Sunday uh, right in the middle of all this. So a lot of you weren't even here then, and those of you that were members here uh, didn't make it uh, for some of these. So if you've heard this before and it brings back memories, that's good. 
uh, means you paid attention the first time. Uh, so let's talk about Christmas at the movies, and let's start at the top. Let's let's pick the one that's traditionally the number one Christmas movie. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. Uh, you may own a copy of It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, you probably don't because you don't need to. It's on TV about 400 times uh, during the Christmas season, so you can you can watch it anytime you want, basically 24/7. Um, but you might have a copy of it. Uh, might surprise you to know I was reading about it this week and discovered that it wasn't really a success when it came out. Uh, it was a flop. Nobody really went to watch it. Uh, but then its copyright ran out and TV got a hold of it and started showing it all the time at Christmas and it became popular. And now it's probably the number one Christmas movie that most people think of and many of you I'm sure have a tradition of watching it every year at least once or until the Kleenex run out, one of the, one of the two. Uh, it's a story of a family at Christmas time. Stars Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed, a couple of famous actors. Uh, in particular, it's about the life of George Bailey, the wonderful life of George Bailey. And I'm sure the movie fans among you know all of this story and uh, are ready to get on to the rest of it. But some of you probably don't know the story. Uh, I've got some young people that probably haven't watched the old classics yet. Uh, so let me just summarize it real quickly, and then we'll get to the lesson. George Bailey had a gift. He had a gift that he didn't think he really wanted. That gift was life. He had lived a life that, from his perspective, when this movie starts, uh, wasn't worth having. He had sacrificed all of his life for his town and tried to do good for the people there, but everything was falling apart. Uh, his brother had lost money that his little savings and loan needed, and uh, the evil Mr. Potter had got a hold of it, and uh, George's world was crumbling. He was probably going to lose the business, probably going to go to prison. Uh, he was going to leave his family in shame and poverty. Uh, he checked into getting his life insurance, getting a loan on his life insurance, and found out that he was worth more dead than he was alive. And so he went to a bridge, and he stood on the edge of that bridge and considered what he should do. He didn't think life was worth holding on to. He didn't think all the things that he had done meant anything. And the story goes that God looked down and saw George in this situation and sent an angel to help him. Second-class angel, Clarence, uh, but he sent Clarence. And so Clarence's method was to review George's life with him. He went back and showed him what his life would look like, or the town would look like, if George hadn't lived his life. If there hadn't been a George Bailey in this town. So here's the things he showed him. First, he told him about his community. Uh, George had worked to build this community. He had worked to protect it. He had done all kinds of things during the Depression and uh, that for his neighbors. Uh, without his influence, Clarence showed him that the town was a mess. It was a den of iniquity. The evil Mr. Potter ran things, and it was a horrible place to live without the influence of George Bailey. Second, he showed him his friends, in particular a pharmacist that when George was a young man 
he had saved from a tragic mistake. He had made a bad prescription and sent it out and it would have killed someone. Uh, George stopped him from that. Clarence showed him that if George hadn't have intervened there, that old pharmacist would have become the town drunk if he had been able to succeed in what he had done mistakenly. Thirdly, Clarence showed him about his relatives, particularly his brother Harry. George's brother Harry fell through the ice when they were young, and George saved him. Uh, Without George, there had been no Harry. Without George, all of the men that Harry, who was a war hero, saved during the war, they would have died because Harry wouldn't have been there to save them. Fourth, Clarence showed George that uh, his family, his immediate family, his beautiful wife, uh, his his loving family, uh, without George... His wife would have become a dejected, old, lonely maid. So Clarence showed him all of these things. And at the end of it, George, uh, Clarence said to George, You see, George, you've really had a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. Clarence convinced him. He got George to understand that he really had had an effect even though right then everything looked horrible to him, he had had an effect on the world. And the the world, his world, was a better place because he had been born. It's a classic movie. Uh, It's a classic thought. And it makes us think about lives that make a difference. George Bailey's life made a difference. Now, from there, from that movie that makes us think about life and whether a life has been well lived and all that, uh, the, the second wonderful life, and the one I really want to talk about this morning, is the life of Jesus. At this time of year, we don't talk about his life much. We talk about his birth. And we focus on just a week or so there. Uh, we talk about the trip to Bethlehem and the the inn that didn't have room and Jesus being born there and the, the shepherds coming and a year later the wise men coming and uh, all of these things we talk about. But we don't talk much about Jesus' life. And that may be one of the big drawbacks of celebrating a birthday uh, instead of the whole life of Jesus. I put a couple of things in your handout for you that uh, I'm not going to read all of them. I want you to... Uh, You can look at them, and if you're listening to the tape, you can look up the famous piece called One Solitary Life, written by James Allen Francis. He wrote kind of a lengthy piece about the life of Jesus, and he basically summarizes it, but then in the last paragraph of it, he says this, all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all of the parliaments that ever met, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. The wonderful life of Jesus. What kind of difference has it made over the 2,000 years since? The other page of the handout, I referenced a book called What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? D. James Kennedy wrote that book, and he's, his contention is that Christianity has changed more on this earth for good than 
anything else ever. And he has a number of chapters, and I just listed them for you there. I think I got most of them. And when you first see this list, you think, well, what's Jesus got to do with that? So let me just go through this a little bit. Bearing in mind, we're talking about a wonderful life, a life that has an effect. First thing on the list is hospitals. may seem kind of strange, but do you ever notice how many hospitals are named St. Luke's Presbyterian or St. Francis or the Baptist Hospital or something like that? That's because hospitals were originally Christian ways to take care of poor people. To help people that needed help, to be hospitable to them. Christians began that. Universities, you think, well, what in the world has a university got to do with Christ? Well, Christians started the concept of universities. Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. You wouldn't know it today, but they were all started by Christians to educate preachers was what they were began for, for Christian purposes. Uh, carved in the stone on the entrance to Harding, or Harvard uh, is Reverend John Harvard's message that the purpose of building the university was his fear of leaving an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers are gone. That's what Harvard was built for. Christian people doing things for their community, for their friends, for their family, for, for this world. Literacy and education of the masses is what Kennedy mentioned next. Uh, obviously, we had education before Christianity came along, uh, but it was for the elite, uh, not for everybody. But the, the Christian world uh, began to educate everybody, especially after the Reformation, uh, Gutenberg invented the printing press. And we think, well, that was a nice thing to happen in history. Well, why did Gutenberg do that? He said, because I know what I want to do. I want to print the Bible. He wanted everybody to be able to read the Bible. Capitalism was in Mr. Kennedy's list, and some might argue that, but I can see what he means, the, the principles of capitalism that are so different from planned economies like socialism and communism, uh, those things don't work because they don't understand who man is. Uh, the Bible tells us who man is. Man is sinful. Uh, we've got a sinful nature. And because of that, a system that understands that and lets each man seek his own, uh, because he's seeking his own, he does good for others, it works. Uh, Adam Smith figured that out and wrote a book about it called uh, The Wealth of Nations. Uh, he was a professor of Christian moral philosophy. But he applied that to economics and figured it out. Representative government. What we've got in this country especially. Uh, the historian H.G. Wells said the Constitution of the United States is indubitably Christian. Civil liberties. You can turn on TV these days and see people exercising their freedom of speech to ridicule Christianity. Uh, it's ironic that they've got that right because of Christianity. Because of the way we, we, we think as a Christian nation, or we did when we were founded. Uh, you can't go to other nations. You can't go to Saudi Arabia and find somebody on TV 
uh, ridiculing the prophet Muhammad. You know, freedom of speech under other religions. Slavery. Uh, in the first century, half of the population of Rome was slaves. Three quarters of Athens were slaves. It's the way the world was. But Christianity began to change that practice. Uh, again, in the 19th century, it began to change that practice uh, in our world. And I, I know Christians owned slaves, but we're talking about the big picture here. If you look at what got rid of Christianity, the, the who lobbied for the abolition of slavery, you find Christians. One book in the Bible about a slave, for that matter, uh, Paul wrote to Philemon about his runaway slave, Onesimus. He said, receive him not as a slave, but as a brother beloved. And over the centuries, as Christianity changed men's hearts, uh, the social order changed with it. Science is on Mr. Kennedy's list. Uh, the Greeks did a little bit of investigating of the natural world. They, they wondered about the natural world, but they mainly wanted to do it so they would know more. Uh, but modern science came along because Christians thought, you know, God created this thing. It's got to be rational. And we ought to be able to figure it out. If we study what God did, uh, we can understand things. Uh, if God made it, there's got to be rules behind it. And so they began to discover things like, well, water boils at 212 degrees. Well, it boils at 212 today, and it'll boil at 212 tomorrow. Uh, because God designed things, and they began to, to look for his design. Uh, the discovery of the new world. We talked about Columbus about a year ago or so, uh, Columbus came looking for some place to expand the Christian kingdom. That was his purpose. Status of women around the world. It's been a, it elevates everywhere Christianity spreads. Other religions, and we've been talking about Islam, especially on Sunday nights lately, uh, women's lives are pretty cheap. cheap. Uh, they're the property of their husbands. Uh, baby girls are killed as useless a lot of places in the world. Aristotle said that women were somewhere between a free man and a slave. And slaves have no rights, so they were a little closer to that. Uh, always amazes me that feminists decry Christianity in our system, but uh, they don't go try another one somewhere. You know, they, they, they got the best one going. Benevolence and charity, I already mentioned hospitals, but uh, poverty is always going to be around. Jesus said there's always going to be poor people around. Uh, but Christianity has done more for the poor and the widows and the orphans uh, than all the other religions and governments combined in the history of the world. Christian people have done that. Uh, you, you go to the scene of a national disaster, a tragedy, or even a foreign one, and who's going to be at the point of service? Who's going to be there? Christian people. Christian service agencies. Uh, after a tornado or flood or a tsunami, uh, you won't find atheists there organizing. You won't find a group of Buddhists there organizing, probably. You can't find a Muslim relief organization. 
Christianity is different. Christ started something different in this world. Justice, uh, the basis of our uh, whole jurisprudence system in the America and most of the world, uh, came from this. It's where it started. The elevation of common man, uh, the concept that all men are created equal came from men who believed the teachings of Christ. A high regard for human life. Wherever the gospel penetrates, uh, the value of human life goes up. Uh, Where Christianity hadn't been there yet, life is pretty cheap. Children are sacrificed. Uh, Unwanted people are just discarded. There are no safety laws for workers. The, The elderly aren't protected or cared for. Uh, and the closer we get to those concepts, it's because we're eliminating or uh, abandoning Christian principles. Uh, written language. You might think, what's written language got to do with Who translates spoken language into written language? Christians. But travel around the world trying to write in their own language the Bible for people. Uh, I've read that there are about 300 million people in the world still without a written language. And the Wycliffe Bible translators travel around the world putting those spoken languages into written languages. The the inspiration for great art, for great music, uh, for great architecture has been to depict the infinite, the spiritual part of man from the Christianity part of this world. And the last one that Kennedy put down was changed lives. Uh, Lives are changed from liabilities to assets where Christianity spreads. Great story. In the 19th century, a fellow named Charles Bradlaugh, uh, he was an atheist. He was prominent. He was outspoken. He railed against Christianity. Uh, There was a man named H.P. Hughes who was a Christian who worked in the slums of London. And Bradlaugh challenged Hughes to a debate. He said, I want to debate Christianity with you. Uh, I want to argue that Christianity is false and doesn't make any difference. And Hughes was pretty sharp. He said, all right, I'll debate you. He said, on one condition. He said, let's both bring a 100 people. He said, I'll bring a 100 people whose lives have been improved by Christianity and you bring a hundred people who have been lives have been improved by atheism. Bradlaw thought about that a little while, and Hughes said, "Well, all right, if you can't find a hundred, he said, "I'll go for 50. Bradlaw was still silent, so Hughes said, "Well, I'll, I'll settle for 20." And finally, Bradlaw decided he didn't want to debate. Okay. Uh, that's just a microcosm of the truth. Christianity improves lives, makes people better uh, for society and for themselves and for their families and everything else. Now, after you hear that list and you look at today's world and you see some secularist that says, I want to get the nativity scene out of the public square, they have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, They don't understand Yeah, getting a baby in a manger out of the public square, okay, no big deal. But when you look at the life 
that we're talking about. The wonderful life, if you will, of Jesus. You see what it's meant to this world. George Bailey's life made a difference in his little town. And Jesus' life has changed this world completely. I want you to look at one more life. I'm going to let you fill it in. We looked at George Bailey. We looked at Jesus. Uh, you can pick who we look at next. I, here's how I filled mine in. Uh, I think you ought to look at your own life. And that's what I want to leave you with today. You shouldn't come and not have a gift to take home with you. So this is your gift. Think about your own life. Uh, George Bailey got in such a mess he had to think about his. Uh, I don't have to be on the, the edge of the bridge to ask this question. In fact, it's a pretty good question to ask probably once a year or so. Now, has my life made a difference? Is, is there anything about my life and the people around me that I've made a difference on? Or should it make a difference? Now, Paul explained it this way, if you wonder if it should make a difference. He said in Romans 6, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. After Clarence visited George, George thought differently about his life. Paul says, once you become a Christian... Once you begin to follow the one that we just talked about, the one who changed the entire world, once you begin to follow him, you ought to live a new life. Things ought to be different in your life, and I would propose that, hence, we ought to make a difference in other people's lives. Well, how do you ask yourself this question? Without the help of an angel, uh, let's just do the same thing that Clarence did. Uh, here's... Four things. Consider these four themes as you ask this question about your life. What's your effect on your community, your friends, your relatives, your family? Your community, you say, well, I hadn't changed the city. No, you don't have to change the city. It can be a littler community. Your school, your work, your, your work group that you take breaks with, your, your neighbors that you know. Some community that you're part of. Is it any different, any better, because you're in it? Now, don't just ask these questions. If the answer is no, I really don't make a difference, then start thinking of a way to do make a difference. Live a wonderful life. Uh, your friends. Where do you have groups of friends? At school, at, at work, uh, here at church? Do you make a difference in those friends? Do you lift them up? Do you hold them accountable? Do you set an example for them? Well, if you can't think of one, pick one. Pick a friend and say, I'm going to make a difference in her life, in his life. I'm going to set an example. I'm going to hold them accountable. I'm going to make them better. How about your relatives? Now, I understand family dynamics are really tricky. Sometimes you don't have any. Well, you never have any control, but sometimes you can't affect family members at all. But at the very least, ask yourself this question. Does my family always see me doing the right thing? 
There's a good question. Uh, They may be out of line on this or that, and they may be as far from living a Christian life as you can possibly get. Do they see you doing the right thing? And finally, your family, your immediate family, your spouse, your children, your grandkids. Are you fulfilling the role that you're supposed to? I know these are hard questions. We, we just talked about that in a series earlier this year. The, remember God's formula for a functional family? We looked at what Paul said a husband ought to do, a wife ought to do, a parent ought to do, and a child ought to do. Go back and look at those if you've forgotten what we talked about. Are you fulfilling that role? Are you making a difference in your family's life? I think it's a good exercise for us at this season or at any season for that matter. Paul said we're saved for a purpose. We're saved to make a difference. Jesus came to make a difference. He came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. We should be able to say... I think, my life matters. I challenge you to do that. If you're not a new creation in Christ, if you're not born again, I'm going to invite you to do that this morning, invite you to see the difference that the life of Christ can make in your life. If you need to respond in any way, come to the front. Let's stand and sing.